Yo, U.S. healthcare system, burnout, racism, gun violence. Episode 45 with Dr. Nee Darko. Let's go, baby. Welcome to Solving Healthcare. I'm Quedro Caramantang. I'm an ICU and palliative care physician here in Ottawa and the founder of Resource Optimization Network. We are on a mission to transform healthcare in Canada. I'm going to talk with physicians, nurses, administrators, patients, and their families because inefficiencies, overwork, and overcrowding affects us all. I believe it's time for a better healthcare system that's more cost-effective, dignified, and just for everyone involved. People, can you believe we are on episode 45? It is crazy. We have over 50 episodes when you include the bonus episodes and we have been hustling. So if you believe in the show, if it's done anything for you, share it, subscribe, leave a five-star rating. It'd be much appreciated. Before jumping into it, I want to thank our new team member, Mark Holmes. He's helping out with editing some of the shows. He's done a fantastic job so far. Mark, thank you so much for joining the team. You are a prince. I want to thank our sponsor, the Better Together Project, Haley Harlock, Queen B. She is organizing on July 9th an event where essentially it's a virtual event that supports spouses of healthcare providers. And they got some great speakers, including I just committed to doing this, which I'm really excited to doing. I'll be showing up. My wife will be showing up. Use this, use the promo code Solving Healthcare. And you'll get ten percent off sign up fees. It'll be worthwhile. So yeah, uh, thanks Haley for the uh, for the support. All right, let me tell you about today's guest and episode. It's with Doctor Nee Darko. This episode actually was recorded December of twenty nineteen, and I've been waiting for the right moment to send to get this out to the world, but I couldn't think of a better moment than now. This guy, I love him. He's he hosts a podcast called Docs Outside the Box, and it's just a, a nice creative show where they talk about ways for docs to thrive, whether it's through business, whether it's through other outlets, and it's a very successful podcast. And he's a great host. I actually d- went on the show yesterday which is june 21st and it was a fun episode to do <laughs> a lot of laughs and a lot of emotion so uh there'll be links to that to the show notes but yeah you guys should check that out we're gonna do a live this week too um but let me tell you about me he's a father he's a podcaster he's a trauma surgeon and both our parents are from ghana we're both first generation north americans if you will so yeah, we have a lot in common and a lot to say. In this episode, we talk about physician burnout. We talk about the differences between Canadian and U.S. healthcare. Talk about race outcomes, how your race can impact your health outcomes. We talk about gun violence. We cover a lot of topics, and it's certainly entertaining, and it was certainly fun to do. This guy's amazing. So I hope you enjoy this episode. And without further ado, Dr. Nidako. Dr. Nee Darko. Hey, Dr. Quadro. Welcome to the show. <laughs> I feel like uh, I'm interviewing a bit of a celebrity in my mind because I've been listening to your podcast for the last little while and 
you throw down, my friend. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. That means a lot coming no, from a fellow said, podcaster. Yeah, no, I, re- I really appreciate you doing this. So as a trauma surgeon that works in the U.S., that has seen a lot, has been, uh, you, how, how many years of practice now are you? I've been out close to seven years now. So pretty much now, yeah, almost so like a veteran years now. Of practice. Yeah. Yeah, you're you're a vet. And in terms of uh, your perspective, where do you see the problems in your healthcare system as a U.S. citizen, as as a trauma surgeon? Where, what, what needs fixing? Mm, that's a that's a loaded question, man. <laughs> you know, and as a trauma surgeon, it's funny I use that that nomen, that wording, but it literally is a loaded question. So. If you look at it from two perspectives, <laughs> right, there's the, the, what the healthcare system looks like for a physician, a trauma surgeon, and then what the healthcare system looks like from a patient standpoint also. From a trauma surgeon standpoint, you know, it's, um, it's, it's a tough question to ask, right? Because when you look at it, the key questions are, are, you know, one, do you have the resources to take care of people in the way that you feel like you need to take care of people in the standard of care? The question, the answer to that is mm-hmm. yes, right? The, but the the more deeper question, though, is 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 this sustainable from a physician standpoint, right? So you spend a lot of hours mm-hmm. in the hospital, you spend, you see a lot of patients, and oftentimes there's just one trauma surgeon or maybe two trauma surgeons taking care of people. So the big thing that trauma surgeons or the big thing that physicians in general are suffering through, and I wouldn't say. I can't tell you the numbers, but there there's a good amount of, of physicians who are suffering through this is is almost burnout, basically, physician burnout, mm. where they feel like, you know, the stakes are very high. You're taking care of people who are very sick and they do great work. Um, they take care of the people who they can save um, and the people who you cannot, you still provide amazing care, but oftentimes, you know, mm. at what expense, right? W- what expense does that mean from mm-hmm. a personal standpoint for a physician? Um, what it does from a um, your general health standpoint, from your mental health standpoint, from a family stability, you know, missing a whole bunch of different things. What does that mean? And I think, you know, this mm. this new type of thought process of thinking about what's really good, not only for the patient, but also how can we make things sustainable for the physician? You know, this is something that's relatively new. It's It started, mm-hmm. I'd say, roughly, I'd say maybe 15 years ago, uh, maybe even sooner than that, where we're really starting to look at the physician from a standpoint of not just being a commodity, um, but actually someone who, you know, is not a robot, but someone who has feelings, someone who gets tired, someone who can call for help. So that, that's kind of where the healthcare system is from a, a physician standpoint is providing great care, having the resources, which we have, um, but also at the same time, it's a double-edged sword, right? Like how can the mm-hmm. physician be as happy as possible? Because we all know happy physicians, you know, take care of, of patients really well. From a patient standpoint, mm-hmm. the really interesting thing is, is from a healthcare standpoint of how we're taking care of people, it's interesting, right? Because we spend the most amount of money on healthcare, right? Per capita, per patient out mm-hmm. of any other country in the world. But I think, I can't remember the last statistics, but I think we're somewhere in the 30s in terms of uh, outcome or right. patient um, uh, outcome and so forth. So there's a disconnect there, like in terms of how much we're spending versus how well patients do. Oftentimes, people send their patients here um, to get the latest and the greatest, but there's an adage, um, and my wife says this because she studied work under um, one of the previous Surgeon Generals, Dr. Mm-hmm. David Satcher, but one of the things that she always says that she learned getting her, her, um, her a fellowship in sexual health and public health 
was people oftentimes say like, listen, if you get sick, come to United States. If you want to stay healthy, go to another country. You know, interesting. It's very interesting. Um, So I I think the other thing too, is just the cost of healthcare is extremely expensive here. Very expensive. Yeah. That's actually, so you've touched on quite a few things that maybe my first comment uh, in terms of burnout, like obviously for sure, it's uh, it's a real thing. We're seeing more docs experiencing that and speaking of it, is it getting better? You know what I'm saying? Like, is it truly getting better the, despite having the more conversations about it, dis- despite having more awareness about the issue? Like in your life, do you feel like we're 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 making some improvements? I think the biggest improvement that we're making is being able to literally have this conversation, right? Like, uh, you know, mm-hmm. I'm not sure how old you are. You sound pretty young, but it's possible like- huh? 42. Okay, so I'm 41, but probably maybe the generation behind us, um, before us, having this type of conversation between two doctors, they would have just laughed at you, right? Like, you know, right. burnout, what is that? What's physician burnout? Like doctors are to come to the hospital, work, and that's it. And they come home. So I think that now that we can have this conversation openly on a podcast, you know, you're in Canada, I'm in the United States, you know, the fact that we can have this type of conversation, I think is one of the biggest things that's for the better, right? That means that we can actually, you can literally be more aware of the situation. That means that now people don't have to go into hiding. People don't have to, you know, keep it to themselves. You know, when you have uh, Mm -hmm. medical students and maybe even you know, medical residents, you can let them know that it's amazing to have this knowledge. It's amazing to take care of patients, but also at the same time, you got to learn to love yourself also. That's just as important. Um, So I think from a Mm 30,000 foot view, yes, that is one of the best things is just the awareness, the fact that this is out there. You know, now you have coaches who are popping up, who are helping physicians really handle this situation. There are podcasts like yours and mine, blogs, there's YouTube videos. Um, there are a lot more outlets mm-hmm. for physicians to really, you know, connect with their feelings and really understand what's going on with them. Has it gotten better overall? That's really tough to say. I think, I think, you know, one of the mm-hmm. things that I, I'm really impressed about is the millennial generation, that generation that we just missed, <laughs> that, that 1981, <laughs> you know, if you're born in 81 or 80, that group up until probably the yeah. age of, you know, maybe 37, 38, you know, they, they are they're bosses with what they want, right? Like they want to be able to take care of patients, right. but they're very clear with saying that lifestyle is very important to them also. And they've kind of led the way through this whole process of, of kind of demystifying what it's like to be a physician and demystifying um, being fulfilled as opposed to being successful. Um, so I, I right. think, you know, to answer your question, I don't know if it's, if we're, if it's gotten better, but I do know that we're willing to talk about it more, which means we're well on our way to making it better. Yeah. I mean, personally, I do think it's getting better because of the reasons you stated and people are willing to be more vulnerable and be more vocal about their concerns and and, and the, the issues that they see. And I, I got to say that it is inspiring seeing like, quote unquote, millennials step up and be like, yo, man, this is BS. We got to like slow this stuff down. Like I could give you examples of you know, I, I went through internal medicine and we, it would be normal to do, be in hospital for 28 to 30 hours, maybe get one or two hours of sleep. And these kids now are saying, no, we're doing shift yeah. work, man. There's no, we're not doing more than 18 hours. They come up with their own system. They give better care. They're more fresh. 
You know, you know what I'm saying? And everybody wins. And that came from them. It wasn't coming from the top. It wasn't coming from, you know, uh, their, their program director or whomever. It was initiative coming from the kids. And now it's, it's tolerable. They're, they're fresh. They're ready to go when, when it comes down to their shifts. And it's a beautiful thing. Oh, yeah. But one thing I did want to ask you, and forgive me if this is too personal, what have you done to kind of mitigate some of this burnout? Because, you know, trauma surgery, I could speak to the trauma surgeons here. Like we, we get obviously less GSWs and stuff, but it's still high volume because of motor vehicle accidents and so forth. But regardless, the hours are horrible. There's a high demand for you. What, have you made any changes in your life to try and either mitigate or reduce the amount of burnout? Oh, absolutely. So yeah, that's a really good question because, you know, within the realm of trauma surgery, you know, the notion is, is you put your head down, you know, you work hard and um, you basically kind of just tax yourself. And that's just kind of the mantra. It's high, you know, a lot of chaos, a lot of energy, um, a lot of stress. Um, that's kind of what we live for. But, you know, that type of lifestyle has an effect on you. It has an effect on you from a health-wise, from a stress-wise. It has an effect on, you know, your family life and your home life also. Um, so one of the things that I'm really excited about, really happy about, is that trauma surgery has slowly, but it's starting to adopt the process of having shift work in the realm. And that if I admit a patient, it's not just my patient. It's also my patient and then the rest of my uh, partner's patients. So that, you know, if I do surgery on a patient Mm -hmm. at four o'clock in the morning, that, you know, if something happens at, you know, two in the afternoon, you know, I'm not expected to kind of wake up out of bed and go back and do something. My partners can take over. That's been one of the biggest, I think, Mm -hmm. one of the biggest things that trauma Mm -hmm. surgery has kind of brought into its its repertoire is the Mm -hmm. ability to do shift work. Um, So, you know, doing a 24-hour shift or maybe even longer in the old days, you know, really wasn't a 24 hour shift, right? Because if someone came in at four in the morning or three in the morning, and then the earliest that you can get into the operating room was, you know, maybe seven o'clock or nine o'clock or 10 o'clock the next morning, well, that was your case. And now you're not doing a 24 hour shift, you're doing a 36 hour shift. And then you get a short period of time to sleep and then you come back and you do it again. That's not healthy, right? That's not good for the doctor. That's not good for the patient. Um, so for me, the biggest thing is just making sure that I'm, I'm embracing programs, um, embracing mm-hmm. areas that, that embrace this type of mentality where we all are taking care of the patient. It's all of our patients. And if my partner needs help or if my partner needs to go get a, you know, take, you know, go sleep, then I can cover for him or I can cover for her. The other thing too, is just mm. me was starting these conversations, having these conversations, you know, with other doctors. Having the podcast, Docs Outside the Box, finding out what the lay of the land is. Um, I oh, just kind of felt like I was on an island when I first started working on my own of, you know, I really enjoy what I do, but also at the same time, there are just these other things that I really would love to explore. Medical humanitarian work, you know, interviewing other doctors about the cool things that they're doing. Um, so just being as, I mean, look, there's no such thing as balance, right? People say that, but is there really balance, right? Let's be honest, right? But Trying mm-hmm. to be as balanced as possible, you know, being a good surgeon, being a good family man for me, mm-hmm. you know, and also at the same time, leaving a legacy of, you know, making it a mm-hmm. lot easier for people to have these type of conversations, you know, electronically or whatever way for me is like, 
the best way for me to combat, you know, stress is the best way for me to combat burnout. Because I feel like now, like I have like a, what's the word? I feel like I have like a, you know, I have direction, I have focus and that eventually I'll leave this earth with really a legacy. No, that's beautiful. Cause I think if you think about how much of an influence this can have, you know, how many people listen to podcasts now? I, I just watched one of your YouTube videos on the power of podcasting, which we could talk about also. But listening to trained professionals talk about being vulnerable, talking about their concerns, talking about how they can reduce the amount of burnout and talk to others about it. Man, like if you're uh, you're an upcoming wannabe trauma surgeon, orthopedic surgeon, intensivist, hearing that, you know, you, you put value to it and it, you, you realize that you can be a human being. And I don't know, I just, I, I applaud everyone, you know, that are doing efforts like this to, to educate the public, educate the fellow, their fellow uh, trainees and, and physicians. Cause I think at the end of the day, we'll provide better care. You know what I mean? You being on your 36th hour, I'm sorry. It's not the same as when you're coming in four hours into a, into a shift, you know, and, I, I think, you know, when you talk about leaving a legacy, that is that is exactly it. You know, it's uh it's so important. Yeah, I agree with you there. Yeah, you're right. So I gotta ask, as Canadians, when we hear or see the news about US healthcare, we get the sense that it's quite differential. It's if you don't have quality insurance, you you might get subpar care or if you don't have insurance at all, you might not get the care that you need and you'll be slapped with a huge bill that m- makes you put out a, a second mortgage on your house or whatnot. I want to get a sense from you. Is this fake news? Is this what you see in your day-to-day life? What's your perspective on this? So it's, it's a good question because um, there's a lot of fake news. There's a lot of, <laughs> I hate to use that term, but there's a lot of news out there that's just not reliable. Um, and so yeah, there there's basically like three types of situations that occur in the United States. There's the you work for your company that you've been working for and they give you health insurance, right? That's private health insurance. So anything that occurs, for the most part, you know that you're going to be covered up to a certain amount. And uh, that's health insurance that comes along with you being employed by your by your job. And then the second one is a government-funded type of health insurance. Those are for people who are 65 and older. Um, That's called Medicare. And then there's also coverage from the government for people who don't make a certain amount of money that are considered, um, you know, below the poverty line. Um, There's uh, some coverage for children, um, as well as people who have certain coverages or certain medical conditions like, you know, end-stage renal disease and other things where they actually have government-funded health care. So between those two, those are the ways in which, for the most part, the majority of Americans have health care. And then there's uh, a large portion of people who just don't have any health care at all. And um, that's where you start to get the issues of if you don't have any health care, one, you know, can you be seen by someone? Two, if you are seen by someone um, and you get care, how are you going to be able to afford it? Are you going to have to, like you said, take out those second mortgages if you can? How are you going to be able to make those payments? Um, That's the part that's really scary. Now, the Affordable Care Act which is something that probably your audience probably knows maybe by the nomenclature of uh, Obamacare, it tried to fix that. 
um, mm-hmm. which basically required everyone in the United States to have health care in some form or fashion. And it made it, it basically got rid of some really cheap plans and got some plans that made sure that it provided really good care for everyone. But there's a lot of political theater. There's a lot of political fodder. There's a lot of money in our government here in the United States from all external sources. And as a result, some of those, uh, you know, some of those things have been kind of pulled back. So the way how I, how I look at it as the way how um, it's affected me is, is, you know, if I'm a physician or if I'm a business person who wants to run their own business, you know, years before it was really difficult to do that because one of the things that you always thought about is, well, well, look, I have this great idea. I want us to have this startup or I want to, you know, be in business for myself. But the one biggest thing that held most, a lot of people back was, well, I can't afford healthcare. I can't afford to buy healthcare on my own. Right. Mm. And what the Affordable Care Act did is it made it a lot more affordable for people like that, people who work for themselves, people who may even have a pre existing condition, diabetes or, you know, whatever it may be that normally would end up paying a really high rate on, on their own. It'll allow them to really buy affordable health insurance. Um, so, so, yeah, a lot of the things that you see on TV is true. Unfortunately, mm. you know, if you are employed, then you have a health insurance. That's great. If you're not employed and you're not under Medicare or Medicaid, um, then you're kind of left to fend for yourself for the most part. There are some programs here and there to help you, but it's still a situation where people, yeah, can still go bankrupt or people, um, if you get cancer, that it can, you know, end up like losing your home. Those are situations that are still out there. And is this what you're seeing? You know what I mean? In your day to day? Life, like at your hospital, are you seeing patients that are having to make these decisions, whether I'm going to get, for example, in that cancer example, am I going to get chemo, yes or no, based on the fact that I don't think I could afford it, or I will, or I will do chemo and just realizing that I'm going to have to find finances somehow. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you see patients make these type of decisions. They play this this game of balancing, you know, one thing, like how am I going to eat or how where am I going to live versus do I really need this healthcare that the physician is telling me about? You know, I did my training, my initial residency training in general surgery. I did that at a hospital called uh, Grady Memorial Hospital in Atlanta, Georgia. Mm. And it's a large, you know, 1100 bed hospital, um, which treats mostly patients who who are indigent, which means they don't have healthcare coverage. Um, so in trauma, how that related is, you know, you see someone who gets into a car accident or someone who gets, you know, who has some type of injury, you take care of them and then you tell them that you may need further things. Like you may need rehab. You may need rehab for your brain injury or rehab for your back injury or rehab to kind of get you back uh, to doing what you normally did back to your job. And then they say literally like, I can't afford this. And depending on what kind of injury they have, you have people who can't walk, you know, maybe for several weeks, you know, mainly because they have really bad fractures to both their legs or some people have injuries to all four extremities. And in order to get into a rehab or to get into a nursing home, you need a certain type of coverage. You know, and we've had people just linger in the hospital until they're able to, you know, finally get some type of aid to help them. Um, But, you know, they're already behind the eight ball or Mm. some people, you know, they just say, look, just send me home. And you look at it and you're like, well, who's going to take care of you? Because it, you either need 24-hour coverage or some type of supervision. And not to mention the fact that they probably won't ever be able to get back to their job, you know, because they don't have access to get them to, you know, rehab or some type of ancillary service. So I see that a lot. I saw that a lot when I was in Grady. 
And, wow. uh, but when I moved to a different hospital and several different hospitals, you know, I saw that less and less, mainly because the, most of the people that I saw, I wasn't in those type of hospital that treats indigent people, but mainly people who are, you know, suffering from blunt trauma, which is mainly the geriatric population who, you know, they have Medicare um, or people who were in car accidents, you know, they had car insurance. So that took over there. But you still see people who don't have anything whatsoever. And the same type of situation, they linger in the hospital for an extended period of time, like the hospital becomes a rehab unit, so to speak, mm. um, which you know, you and I both know, um, for the most part, is not the best place to do rehab. Exactly. You know, or unfortunately, you send them home, and they, you know, just definitely get suboptimal care um, there. Wow, no, because like, I mean, the stuff that you mentioned too, that's the stuff that matters, right? Like when you have a significant injury and you want to get back to your baseline, you want to become a functional human being, you need that rehabilitation. You need that physiotherapy. That's the stuff that matters. And then, you know, they're saying you can't afford that stuff. It's just, it's, it's sad. And because mm. I get this question all the time, I used to get this question all the time when I was training even now because of our, our provincial governments have made some dr- dramatic um pay cuts to to physicians and stuff they say would you ever go down to the states and this is pr- one of my biggest fears is hearing these stories like looking some cat in the eye and saying you know what i, I know you can't afford it and we we either gotta like make you poor by providing this care or give you suboptimal care because of your financial circumstances it's it's very different than what we deal with in Canada. So it's it's like almost like a, my mind gets is blown when I hear these stories. You know what I'm saying? So so what happens in those situations? Because you know you know I'm sure you've seen those situations. Like for example, like when you have someone. Well, everybody has insurance, right? So how, how exactly. does that work out? Like if if someone breaks their legs and they can't get back to work and they have to go to rehab. That that is it always just a smooth process? They get to the next stage? Straight up. Let me tell you. In Canada, <laughs> we, you know, there's universal health care. So yes, you are covered for all the basic services, like stuff like um drugs, uh, some equipment aren't covered, uh, you know, physiotherapy is not covered out of hospital, stuff like that, uh vision, uh, that's not covered. But you come in as a trauma patient, even if you don't have a health card for some reason. So you come in from the streets, okay? You're getting everything you need to survive. You're getting the rehab in, in hospital. You're getting the drugs that you need. You get sent to a center that, you know, a rehab center that is still within, you know, uh, that is covered within our healthcare act. And we get you better, regardless of where your, you know, uh, what your financial situation is. And so different provinces pay different premiums um, to cover that, but it's usually uh, fairly low. And even, to be honest with you, even if you don't pay it, no one's kicking you out the door. You know, mm-hmm. we're Canadians. Okay. Gotcha. <laughs> I understand. You know, I understand. But, but um, it's interesting. So, like, it is, it ain't fake news, basically, is what I'm hearing, is, you know, when it comes to the U.S. and its, its current uh, state when it comes to healthcare. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's, it's a, you know, it's a problem. Let's just leave it to you like that. And it's something that we still need a lot of work in. And the biggest thing from my perspective is, is just like the political games that people play that, you know, our politicians play. It's really unfortunate. You know, it's really unfortunate because, 
you know, and health insurance has a huge lobby in, you know, in the, in the government hospitals have a huge lobby, you know, doctors, not as much, but they still have a lobby. Um, mm-hmm. So it's like everybody's self-interest, unfortunately. And uh, it's, it doesn't produce a really good system. I don't think overall. And this might be a loaded question, but do you see solutions? Like if you, if you were king for a day or a month, whatever, it, that's a good question. I'll tell you why. Because, you know, oftentimes you hear, well, you know, if you let the doctors handle everything, then, you know, things will be better. But is that really true? You know, like, <laughs> is like, I mean, because you think about it, most doctors don't know how to, you know, their finances aren't the greatest. You know, mm-hmm. a lot of people say doctors get paid, at least in the United States, doctors get paid uh, a certain amount. But oftentimes doctors aren't the most wealthiest people, right? Because, right. you know, some of the decisions that they make, you know, aren't the smartest, but in terms of like doing, the, you know, pro forma or doing, you know, the X's and O's, we don't get any training in that. Right. right. So, and then how do you manage all of these different things? We don't really get much training in that. So I don't know necessarily, you know, what the solution is. And, you know, people just saying, well, just have more doctors in there. I, I think that could help. Um, but ne- like literally having doctors as leaders in this, I don't know if that's the answer. You know, I think one of the best things that we have to do, number one, is we got to stop the amount of lobbying that's occurring Mm. to politicians. Because ultimately what's going on is that's the part where is is the huge problem. You have people who don't really know much about healthcare or much about how medicine in general is practiced, yet they're making all the decisions based off of, you know, lobbying, you know, and that's a problem. You know, I think that's a big, big problem. I think I think that that is a huge area that of um, like I think that's where the real solution is. Like, there's you know, I mean, you we see the power of lobbying when you see the NRA stuff. Oh like my I, goodness, I, I, I mean, I don't want to. I don't know what your political alliance is. I don't know if you're. I mean, it might be too personal with the guns issue, but when we see this stuff, like, let me tell you something. This might be this might be a little bit of. Uh, like I'm going off the rails a bit here. When I saw kids being shot up in Connecticut, okay, you knew, and and then nothing really changed. You knew nothing's going to change. Oh yeah, kids, Absolutely. man, six year old kids. Like, how old are your kids? My kids are uh, two and three months. Yeah, yeah oh, congratulations. Thank you. Young. Thank you. Yeah, and you know, um, I just to me, if the kids can't change your mind about this shit nothing will and yeah. it just it really shows you the power of the lobbyists and 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 the nra and, and and so forth i mean you live that world too uh, from a trauma side you know what i mean like we do not even come close to seeing the amount of gunshot wounds as you guys do like i work in the icu we'll get at our trauma center we'll get uh maybe six a year mm, yeah like in the ICU anyway, maybe some of the trauma unit will get uh, some, but like gunshot related trauma, minimal. And we're population of about a million plus. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, it's, it's, it's um, crazy. You know, one of the, one of the proudest times that I've been to be a trauma surgeon was, I don't know if you remember, basically the NRA had uh, basically made a statement. I forgot something, there was an event that occurred last year some type of uh, obviously shooting occurred and some trauma surgeons had said something or some physicians had said something and NRA basically, and I'm paraphrasing said, you know, mm-hmm. like, you know, like stay in your lane. Like, what do you know? About oh all this yeah, stuff? yeah. 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 And you're, and you're just like, wait, what do you mean? What do I know about this? So literally doctors, 
surgeons got, you know, really fired up and started taking pictures of like, you know, bloody, you know, scrubs and bloodied shoes and bloody, mm. you know, operating room floors and saying, what do you mean? I don't know what I'm talking about. And I should stay in my lane. This is my lane. Like this is right in my lane. And for, you know, it, like I said, I don't know, I, I can only speak on, you know, since I've been practicing and, you know, in med school and so forth. But like, that was one of the first times that I saw physicians really take to social media and really mm. use one voice and say, look, this is what is affecting not only patients, but it affects us. It affects our system. We need to do something to change as opposed to being, you know, like these bystanders in this situation. Well, I don't know. I mean, I, I just got to follow whatever the politicians say. And it's like, no, like we have a word, we have a powerful voice. Let's use it. We mm. have social media. It doesn't cost anything. You don't have to lobby anybody. Just get on social media and let people know what's going on. Mm. And uh, I was very, very proud you know, to be a trauma surgeon, because, you know, we've been leading this thing, but we haven't been leading it strong enough. Mm. And, um, you know, there are trauma surgeons throughout the, the country who are stepping up more. You have the Dr. Brian Williams, you know, you have, you know, just trauma surgeons throughout the country who are speaking out more about this and, you know, letting people know that this is what I see on a daily basis and nothing has changed. And you're right. You know, once you, I mean, the first part is once, you know, I, I think even before the children, which was an extremely sad thing is I remember I was just like, oh, well, probably what will happen is if a congressperson got shot, then wow. it would change everything. Right. But that occurred. Nothing happened. Right. Mm. Then another congressperson got shot. Right. At, at the baseball game. I don't know if you remember that. Oh, that yeah, was yeah. a couple of years yeah, ago. Yeah. And, you know, and then you have Sandy Hook and nothing happened. So it's just like this, like you said, it's really the power of lobbying. It's the power of, you know, people who really feel very strongly about the second amendment and um, how votes work and how power works. It's, mm. it's very, 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 um, it's very difficult, you know, um, yeah. as even someone like me, who's raising two boys now, you know, mm. I'm very fearful about those things, you know, even as myself, I'm very fearful about that. Yeah. I, I gotta, it's gotta be troubling in the sense that like, I would feel a bit powerless, you know, and to, cause like, once again, all these shootings are happening and the people that shouldn't be shot aren't like, no one deserves to be shot, obviously, but like really kids getting shot is not changing anything. Congress people not changing anything. And you know, and it's, I mean, it's gotta be tough seeing that as a trauma surgeon too. Like, especially I always find it's always tough seeing people that you can most relate to. So when you see young patients that are injured, young people with families, like that's always been the toughest for me as a, as a ICU doc or a palliative care doc. And, you know, you get a 20 some year old kid that gets shot up and you know that, you know, they had their whole life in front of them. They may or may not have had a fa chance to have a family. It's, uh, I just, it just breaks my heart when oh, it's something I'll, I'll that... take, I'll take it a step for, uh, further. I mean, as an African-American male, you know, um, mm. you know, I remember training, doing some, uh, some internship work, you know, as a fourth year at Cook County hospital in Chicago, um, which is a, a gunshot. Um, a lot of gunshots happen there. A lot of people are dying there. Um, a lot of, uh, that type of violence is occurring there. And you just see what happens on a daily, day in and night in basis of, you know, African-American men, African-American men, you know, men of darker hue, men, you know, who are black and brown coming through. And you just as a physician or even as at that point as a medical student, you're just like, you know, you, what is going on here? Right. Mm. You feel helpless there. You know, these people literally look just like me. These are, you know, it, depending on circumstances, could be cousins, could be, 
you know, whoever it may be, that's, it affects you, you know? Mm -hmm. And like I said, if we take it back to what I said earlier in the show, we're like, we're not robots, right? Like we're, we're trained to be technicians and we're trained to take the emotion out of it. But you know, that's, that's really very powerful and sobering, you know, scene to see this night in and night out Mm -hmm. and to know that what can you do? But you know, one of the things that I feel really promise, you know, really hopeful about is, you know, you have, you know, men and you have women who are coming from these neighborhoods who are able to get out and they're coming back to help, you know? So you Mm -hmm. have Dr. Gore, who is an emergency room physician in New York who started the Kings Against Violence Initiative. He grew up in Brooklyn, New York, and then trained at Cook County in Chicago, both high crime areas. And now he started a a youth intervention violence program in Brooklyn, you know, Mm -hmm. called Kavi. And uh, he was really close to winning one of the CNN heroes thing last year. So if anybody's interested, go ahead and check that out. You know, there's, you know, Dr. Brian Williams, Dr. Ken Wilson, who are doing great work at University of Chicago, you know, you know, Dr. Uh, uh, Ken Wilson is from Baltimore, uh, but then did his training at uh, in Atlanta, Georgia, and now is doing work at University of Chicago. You know, so that's the f- part that for me, I'm just like, okay, I'm feeling really promising about this because we're not just victims in our communities. We're coming back, we're doing work, but there's even so much that we can do from that standpoint also, right? Mm-hmm. Like you need, like you said, like you need like a top-down approach, right? Because a lot mm-hmm. of this stuff is rooted in one, how we treat our communities, you know, how funding occurs in communities, how we police our communities, you know, things like redlining. I don't know if your community, if you guys are familiar with that. that. Redlining is basically, it's an old policy um, that was very, very subtle, um, but basically based off of the people who lived in certain neighborhoods, certain mortgages and certain resources to a city were given to that town or given to that portion of town or taken away from that portion of town. Hmm. And as a result, you know, you have houses that were great houses or, you know, houses that structurally are great, but just nobody can get a mortgage there. Or maybe the property taxes are too high, or maybe the schooling system is not that great. So as a Mm. result, you just have this cycle that occurs in these neighborhoods. And as a result, being able to get out of that community is that much more difficult. It's more Mm. than just, you know, just studying. It's, can I get home safely? Um, Is, you know, do I have the schooling? Is my teachers have enough funding? You know, and not to go down this whole rabbit hole, but that's just kind of those things that, you know, you think about, um, as a as a physician, particularly in trauma areas, particularly in areas that get a lot of gunshot wounds, it's more than just violence. It's a whole, you know, multiple multiple dimension, multi dimensional thing that occurs here. Yeah, I mean, if I've learned anything by doing this show over the last little while, is we often are not giving our kids, we're giving them a recipe to fail. Quite often, you know, if they're growing up in an area that is not safe, they got to worry about their their ability to walk to school. We, there were, uh, we, they have teachers that are maybe not at the same standards as other places. Their circle of friends are, might be into some drugs or violence. Like, it's hard to overcome that. You know, yes. I, I recently had a, I interviewed one of our uh, truly angelic physicians, Jeff Turnbull, and he does, uh, he does uh, inner city health and uh, really does amazing work. And when you get to hear the stories of the, what all these people have gone through, is it is no wonder they're homeless or battling drugs and alcohol, and it just it's it might be motherly saying this, but it really emphasized the the value of investing in our community, providing a safe environment for our kids, and really trying to provide them a way to be able to thrive. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, um, I I agree with you there. 
And I think we as physicians, like we have to be the protectors of people who are the most vulnerable, right? Mm. It's not just like you said, like just taking care of people and then that's it. See you there later. It's, you know, literally like thinking about how they're going to be able to pay for this medication. How are they going to be able to get to rehab? You know, if, um, you know, they suffer multiple rib fractures and I decide to do this procedure, how much is it really going to cost them? Like mm-hmm. all these different things you have to think about. It's really difficult. It's really that's, difficult. That's, that's got to be so challenging. Like, it's just like, as you described, like just to give an example for, for the non-medical folks. So like, you know, uh, in my world, if so, a trauma patient that has multiple rib fractures, you could have, you think that's, it's just rib fractures. What, what's the big deal? But you, as a result, you might have an inability to cough or clear your secretions. You get a pneumonia. You end up being on a ventilator because you can't breathe and clear that secretions and complications there afterwards. And so there's some procedures where you could, you know, give some local anesthetics on the ribs. I don't know how expensive that is in the U.S. system. But once again, these these things in Canada, we, you know, we, we, we push for. And that procedure could prevent all that kind of downstream effects from what I was just describing. But thinking to yourself you know, should I be offering this knowing that the the paycheck is, that they have to pay out of pocket? Like, how heavy is that shit? It's it's, it's crazy. It's crazy. Yeah, it's crazy. You know, and then you start to realize, like, did I really help this person or did I make it difficult? You know, you just, you, it's, it's really tough. It's really difficult. Um, But it's just, yeah. Yeah, no, because like, there's enough decisions you got to make, you know what I mean? In terms of optimal care, like, you know, medicine isn't always black and white. There's multiple approaches. And to have that as an additional factor into trying to do what's best for the patient. Oh my God. That just must be so difficult. Oh yeah. I I agree with you. Yeah. Oh man. Um, So I got a couple other questions for you. Once again, we talked about uh, offline. We talked about being, you know, you don't run across too many Ganyans or African-American uh, clinicians. And to give you a bit of background too, I, you know, I grew up in Edmonton, Alberta, you know, my nickname, <laughs> you, this, I don't know if I'm going to keep this, but my nickname was black people. Cause wherever I went, I was <laughs> representing black people. There's no <laughs> brothers anywhere. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. And I played hockey and recently. Oh man, uh, you're a yeah, unicorn. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Unicorn, coconut, whatever. But recently in the news, there was, uh, there was incidents that came out where coaching staff were using racial slurs towards, uh, towards black hockey players. And it was I heard funny. about I, this. Yeah, yeah, I got a bunch of messages saying, like, you know, how, how what was your experience like playing hockey growing up in Edmonton and stuff? And luckily, my coaches were great. I never had any experience like that. But certainly on the ice, it was horrible. You know, every name that you could think of. I got called that. And I've always wanted to ask this because I, I, you know, I, I don't get a, uh, get this situation and that uh, often. From your experience as an African-American physician, was there struggles? Was there discrimination? Was it well-received? Like, what was your experience like? You know, it's, I have to be really honest. Like, I, I don't, I can't say any situation where I've had overt racism or overt discrimination at me. You know, over the past uh, six years, I've been working um, in a rural portion of Pennsylvania. And um, I have to be very honest, like people have been very sweet to me. Mm. You know, the, the one thing that I have to look at it as is, you know, 
when I walk into a room, obviously there's not many African-Americans who live in this area. There's not many African-American doctors, obviously uh, more so, but I've never had anybody overtly say, I don't want you or maybe one time. Um, and actually that wasn't even in Pennsylvania. I was in another state, hmm. but that, that, you know, you look at it as an opportunity to teach people. You look at it as, I look at it as an opportunity to teach people. I look at it as an opportunity to just let them know that, you know, medicine is practiced in so many different forms and factors. The standard of care is the same. What I do um, is just that, you know, I'm African, you know, I'm African-American and this is what I do. Mm -hmm. Um, um, But I'm sure that there are more situations where people can definitely attest to there being some type of, uh, you know, behavior based off of race or behavior based off of some type of discriminatory or bias, bigoted action and stuff. So, but I, I truly can say, and I'm really blessed to say that I can't really think of a moment where that's been overt to me. Now, before that though, growing up, I grew up in New York City. You know, my parents were immigrants, but it was very, you know, oftentimes, I don't know if your if your listeners are are understand this, but there's 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 this experience of being an immigrant and then there's an experience of, you know, being in the United States, you know, which is, you know, like your parents are first generation. Um, and then you're, there's a certain language that's spoken in the house. There's a certain culture that's in the house. And then there is, when you leave the house, the type of culture also that you're, quote unquote, need to assimilate into also. Um, so for me, being raised as African in my house and then being raised as an African-American, sometimes those are two different things, right? Like you're African, but also at the same time, how you're looked upon and how people think about you as an African-American, like you can't really separate those two. So I was very, um, my parents made sure I was very aware that, you know, just the rules are very different for oftentimes for people like me in the United States, how people perceive me, how, you know, my interactions uh, oftentimes with authority, with police, uh, what have you, I have to be very careful about those things. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember having the quote unquote talk. I don't know if people are familiar with that, but, you know, you get the talk, which is, you know, when you talk to a police officer, it's very yes, sir, no, sir. Um, you know, you, there's never any back talk. Um, it's, you know, you live on, you lit, don't, you just do whatever you need to do to live in order to get back home to mom and dad. And then you let us kind of handle those type of situations, right? Like these type of conversations don't happen. I doubt in other types of homes, right. In right. in white homes, right. But in mm-hmm. a black home, which I, and I'm going to have that conversation with my kid, no doubt. Right is like these type of conversations occur. So I was very aware at a very young age growing up in, in, in Queens, New York, you know, I was very aware of like the differences that occur and how we're treated and so forth. But as, you know, became a medical student and resident, I even did, you know, my, my medical school out in Kansas City, Missouri, and I did a bunch of my rotations out in the Midwest. People were very sweet to me. And people were very, very, very sweet to me. And um, sweet to my wife at the time. Well, she was my girlfriend at the time. Um, she's from Haiti. So, you know, oftentimes we were in very rural areas of Missouri or, you know, Kansas and so forth. And mm-hmm. people were very, very sweet to us. So from a medical standpoint, I have not seen it. Oh, well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. I, I think um, at a personal level, it's, it's few and far between, but certainly, you know, snide comments. Have, I've, I've, experienced, I've experienced it all, but, but fortunately, it's, it's been rare. Mm-hmm. You know, Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. But it's... Uh, you know, it's, it's, I still, I can't help to get emotional though. Anytime I hear about the quote unquote, the talk, you know, I, yeah, I, you know, it's like you're taking, it's like you're literally taking the innocence away from your children. Yeah. And, you know, and yeah. And, and I'll be honest with you, we're in Ottawa. It's not, it's not the same, but it's, it's more like uh, my, my kids are, are, 
of mixed race, but still, you know, if we're traveling to the States, like you gotta be careful. Like I'll give you an example. We were in, in Tampa Bay, Florida, and you know, we're having a good time with, with my boys and you know, they're about to jaywalk, like go across the street, jaywalk, uh, to to get to another bar or whatever and i'm like i ain't jake jaywalking shit you know yeah. what i'm saying i ain't no yeah. there's zero chances here down in florida that i'm crossing the street when i'm not supposed to i'll see you guys in about three minutes mm-hmm. you know so um yeah it's just it's it's hard to hear that and uh hopefully th- that situation gets yeah it's it's one of the things that i think you know is is a stain in the united states and there, you know, the United States is not alone, um, but it's one of those things where like, you know, we are, for example, like I, I had a patient in, in one of my previous jobs who, this is a rural portion of the United States, and he came in with a gun. Like he was in a car accident and came in with a gun, mm-hmm. um, like, a, a, like a motor vehicle accident. He just happened to have a, a gun. He was, I think he had a con- conceal and carry license. So he's completely mm-hmm. legal and so forth. The problem though is, and I didn't see him initially. The problem is that one of my partners, you know, when you're evaluating someone, you take all their clothes off, you're evaluating them and so forth, but the gun fell out. And thankfully it didn't, you know, it didn't go off. Nobody got injured or anything mm-hmm. like that. But I remember my partner saying to me, he's like, listen, like I'm going home, but can you have this conversation with this guy? And say, look, man, you can't. And I'm like, yeah, no, I'm not having that conversation <laughs> with this guy. Like that's on you. You know what I'm saying? My, yeah. my partner is white. And I was like, yeah, I'm not having that conversation. And he was like, yeah. well, why not? I was like, well, just because I don't feel comfortable having that conversation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I finally let it, I'm like, look, me as a young black male, you know, black physician, although, you know, there's a certain, you know, authority that comes along with that. Like, I'm not having that conversation with that. You know, I don't feel mm-hmm. comfortable having that conversation mm-hmm. with, a, with a white male who has this situation say, you need to let me know X, Y, and Z. Mm-hmm. Um, because I just think that the it's just different, you yeah. know? Yeah, it's just different, you know, and that's the best way I could really explain like the differences that occur, right? He could have that conversation, but I don't think necessarily I could have. Now, obviously I can have that conversation if you know what I mean. Like I can have that conversation. The question is, is, you know, you start to think about, well, what are the consequences of these type of things? Mm -hmm. Right. So Mm -hmm. that, that's the part that I think, you know, you start to realize like, like, when you have that talk with your kids, you're just like, man, like you take away their innocence, so to speak. Right. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, you kind of, I don't know how to explain, but it's like, like, it's almost like their light can't shine as brightly as you want it to shine because they have to be concerned about X or they have to be concerned about Y. It's just one of those things that you just get a little bit concerned about, but I think we're all, we're moving in the right direction. Yeah, I think I provided think we fair. all can have these type of conversations more often without people you know, taking it too personal and just being open and honest with each other, having a conversation, mm-hmm. not being too politically correct about things, right? Because sometimes yeah. being too politically correct oftentimes makes sure that people don't talk, right? Exactly. <laughs> you know, exactly. So, so just being able to have these conversations like what we're having, which we, you know, 10, 15 years ago before podcasting, we would never have been able to have this conversation. Exactly. Right? I, and I, I could guarantee even some of the listeners are listening now and they're like, this is a bit hard to listen to because it makes them a bit uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's good to hear because this is how change happens, my friend. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So listen, what I want you, like, I like to end off with on a positive note. And I want you to tell the listener a time where you were proud of what you do, where you got that feedback from, whether it's a, a patient or a family member or administrator or something, where you were like, you know what? I belong. 
doing trauma surgery, uh, being a being a, a leader, being a podcaster, whatever it might be. Well, I, I mean, I could give you a bunch of them, but one of them was actually recently. So one of the where I trained at in Atlanta, Georgia. So people who are not physicians, you have a chairperson who's in charge of the entire division of the medical specialty. So in my case, surgeon is a, is a chairperson and he's in charge of and making sure that the department, the rest of the other surgeons are kind of working hand in hand. But also what this chairperson does is he makes sure that um, he's the final say on who gets brought in to train for residency, right? Who are the new doctors who just graduated? How are they going to, who's going to get accepted and how they're going to train? So my chairperson, his name was uh, Dr. Uh, William Lynn Weaver and um, very, very impactful uh, life, not only from family life, but also from a, a, a medical standpoint. And uh, he accepted me into his program at Morehouse School of Medicine. And forever changed my life mm. and um, really held him in high regard, um, was a bit scared of him, um, but very <laughs> revered and um, taught me a lot about not just medicine, but also taught me about a lot about medicine. Um, well, unfortunately, this year um, he passed away. Mm. So I had to go to his funeral. But I was working in Wisconsin, you know, the day before, two days before, and um, my partner accepted a patient. This goes back to Whoever my partner admits or takes care of is really my patient and then vice versa and so forth. So my my partner accepted a patient who went to another hospital, had some abdominal pain. Um, They did a CT scan that showed that this patient had a hole in his intestine, something that's called diverticulitis. And there's two ways you can treat it, either with an operation or sometimes in some of these patients, you can literally just watch them and that hole will heal and over, you know, a couple of weeks or so, you um, give them antibiotics and then eventually maybe a month from now or three months from now, they'll have that portion of their colon removed and they'll be fine. Mm-hmm. But in this situation, it sounded like this patient was okay based off of what I got from my partner. That wasn't the case when the patient arrived to my ED. Uh, the patient was very sick. Um, he was elderly and um, looked like he couldn't breathe anymore. His blood pressure was high. His heart rate was, sorry, his blood pressure was low. His heart rate was high. He needed to go to the operating room immediately. Um, I took him to the operating room immediately, but right before I took him, I spoke to his wife and told her that he's very sick and um, I'm not sure you know, how he'll do, but I'm going to do the best that we can. Took him to the operating room and there's just literally stool and poop all over his, ab- inside his abdomen. Mm. We found a hole and I removed it. Um, and there was just so much soil soilage in there. There's so much poop there that I literally did not feel comfortable closing him up at that point. So what you do in those situations is you literally wash out as much poop as possible. You put some plastic covering over the intestines and you put a special type of vacuum there and it just, you keep the abdomen open, you keep the patient intubated or with a breathing tube and they stay in the intensive care unit for about 24 hours to 48 hours. And then they come back, you take them back to the operating room and then you do the rest of your surgery. Well, with this guy, after I finished the first surgery, which was leaving him open, you take him back to the intensive care unit. He stays on a ventilator. He stays sedated, but he needed medication to keep his blood pressure up. And we call that vasopressors. Well, by the time I left the next morning, he was on three of those vasopressors. Um, he was on three of those medications, which means that basically he's extremely touch and go. More than likely, mm-hmm. he's probably going to die. And I spoke to the wife and I told her what I did and I told her what was needed and how he was doing and that, you know, the prognosis, prognosis was very grave and grim. Well, the next morning, literally, I got on a plane, flew down to Georgia, 
went to Dr. Weaver's funeral, um, met with some people who I haven't seen in years and met with his family and so forth. It was a great ceremony. By the time I flew back, this guy was still very sick. And then I actually had to go to another place, another, um, had to leave the hospital again. By the time I came back, long story short, he was off of this medication. Um, my partners had closed his abdomen and, um, you know, he got the tube out of his mouth and he's talking, um, still very weak, not really eating and so forth. Um, but the wife just gave me a huge hug. You know, she gave me a huge hug and said, thank you so much for what you did. And I said, well, I just did the first surgery, you know, like he, you know, got through X, Y, Z, all these different things. She's like, no, but like, you know, you did the best you could and he survived and stuff, you know, and like those type of feelings, you know, combined with what I was going through with, you know, the death of my, of my chairperson, you know, you really start to think about just what we do. We're not robots, right? We're not, you know, patients aren't just textbook cases. Like, you know, these are real individuals, right? This is someone who has someone, this is a patient who has a wife who loves him very much. He probably has children who probably has, you know, sons, daughters, you know, whoever who really care about him a lot, you know, just the same way how, you know, my chairperson has a family and allowed me to be in this program. And then from there, you know, his legacy continues through me. And now I'm able to provide that type of care to my patient. Right. Mm. So it's like, that's why like something like that really resonated with me because, it really talks about like how like it really talks to how we, you know, this just the human element, right? That we mm. don't get to talk much about in medicine, right? That human element, that spirit, that soul, that legacy, you know, the pay it forward type of thing that, you know, we don't really talk much about. But when you see it, you're just like, wow, you know, was this at play? You know, I don't know if the higher being is is in play, but mm. you know, that was some that was a moment where I felt like, wow, like you know, seven years into this, I'm, I'm really meant to do this. And I was wow. here for a reason. And he let me into his program for a reason. And now it's my turn to affect people based off of his teachings, you know? Yeah. Wow. That is, uh, that's incredible. You know, first of all, sorry to hear about Dr. Weaver and, and, uh, um, but I can't, I love what you're saying though, about making, making it clear that these are human beings, humanizing our patients, right? Like, it's it's something that I, I, I hate to say it, we forget sometimes based on the the volume of patients we're seeing how busy we are but you know hearing stories like that and the impact you could have on an individual or family it's it's so powerful and uh, I'm glad to, I'm glad you shared that with all thank of you. us thank you for helping me uh, talk about that actually too I didn't you know you think about it but you know when you talk about it with someone else or you talk about it on the podcast it really you know, puts you in a different perspective, right? So I appreciate you asking that question. No, absolutely. I want to know about your charitable work. You 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 do work in Ghana. Yes. And why I am ultra envious of you is I've been telling my wife that we are long overdue to be able to give back. We're We're in a very fortunate situation. We have great jobs, wonderful children. And now that things are, you know, getting your head above water with training and all that stuff, you know, for me, I would love to give back. And and you've done this seven years into your career with a young family. And I just want, want to give you the opportunity to maybe speak to what you're doing in Ghana. Yeah, thank you very much. So I, I work with an organization called the International Healthcare Volunteers. 
and it was started by uh, Dr. Charletta Ayers, as well as uh, Dr. James Akins. And Dr. James Akins, he's from Ghana. He's from Cape Coast. Um, and he's a gyne oncologist. And Dr. Ayers is an OB-GYN doc. And it started roughly about 15, 16 years ago. Um, his uh, niece, um, who was in Ghana, unfortunately passed away um, while delivering, giving birth in Ghana, which I'm sure you know, Dr. Quadro, happens far too often mm. uh, in, in Ghana. The maternal death rate uh, in Ghana when delivering is, is, is too high. So basically, uh, he started an organization, this organization, to help initially with women's health, uh, with OB, as well as with cervical cancer screening and so forth. And then over time, slowly but surely, it's increased the amount of other specialties that has occurred that happened on this, on this trip. And now we're at a point where, you know, we have general surgery, we have pediatrics, we have, you know, so many different specialties that occur. But for me, it's really, really as close to what I call a professional reboot as possible. Mm. And I, I oftentimes recommend for people, even if you're not in the medical field, if you have an opportunity to do some volunteer work outside of the country, or even just some volunteer work with a community that you have never really come into contact with, it can be one of the most sobering, one of the most really very sobering when you start to see what people have and what people don't have mm. and you start to compare it with what you what you have you know and you know like case in point like you know like hernias like having a groin hernia a bulge in your groin that occurs a lot in the united states and it gets fixed a lot in the united states but in in overseas in ghana or in other countries you know, that can be very debilitating. Someone mm-hmm. won't be able to work, which they can't be able to feed their families. And to be able to fix this, this type of hernia, you know, oftentimes in the United States, we fix it surgically, but we use a special type of uh, mesh. Um, it's very light, looks like a, a, almost like paper, but it's very strong. And we use that to kind of buttress the repair and make it very, very strong. Well, they don't really use that in Ghana much because it's extremely expensive. And in Ghana, oftentimes they have to pay for their own antibiotics up front. They have to get blood from their family up front. Um, they have to pay their bills up front. Um, so it could be very, it's very, it's a stark difference than how healthcare is in the United States, definitely stark than in Canada. So it, when I say it's as close to a professional reboot as possible, you really start to realize, you know, what you can do, the impact that you can have in those type of communities. It really lets you know that, hmm. Do I really need all of these quote unquote pain medications when I come back to the United States? It really helps you to kind of understand, you know, what is really necessary to provide standard of care, you know, here in the United States. And that's why I say it's as close as a professional reboot as possible. From a personal standpoint, it's an opportunity for me to give back. Although I was born in the United States, I was, you know, I was raised as an African also, you know, I eat the food. My mom made the food. I still eat the food (laughs) now you know, I go back and visit family. So to be able to go back and visit family and for them to meet my wife and my kids and, you know, for me to meet my cousins and nephews and grandparents, all of my families in Africa, it's a very small family that's in the United States. So for me to be able to go back and, and see them and then say, hey guys, I got a jet because I got to go to this hospital down the street or provide care, you know, for them is, is one of the biggest, it's a dream come true for me, right? Mm-hmm. I really feel like I'm doing, you know, work that I was put here to do. And oftentimes, and I tell this to people, you know, oftentimes, like whatever you feel like doing or whatever you want to do, that's not going to, it's not going to like come to you like in your, like, you're not going to just see it. It's not going to be very apparent, right? Mm -hmm. Oftentimes people who say that they're doing really great work 
oftentimes like step into it or stumble into it. I was actually brought into this by my wife. She was my girlfriend at the time, but she trained under those two people, Dr. Aikens and Dr. Ayers at her hospital. And they were doing it. And then I was like, oh, what are you going over to Ghana to do? She's like, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. I was like, wait, what? What? You need to get me involved in this. First of all, that's my country, right? You need, to get, you need to get me involved in this, you know? And then I just never thought that it would be so rewarding, right? So, mm. you know, I oftentimes tell people that, you know, you never know. Like, you know, if you, I always tell people, just try something, try something different. Do something that makes you uncomfortable because you never right. know. Like it may end up being the work that you find most fulfilling. So That's beautiful. And I got to, I've only been to Ghana. Was it twice? Yeah, twice. And so you, one one thing I, I got to say is when you come back, it really makes you appreciate the small stuff. You know, for, uh, I have a lot of family in not quite rural settings, but, you know, it's third world, right? So, you mm-hmm. you know, you don't have a hot shower. You got to, there's no washing machine. There's no laundry machine, you know, like uh, it's it's real. And yeah, it really makes you appreciate how fortunate we have. We are living in North America, and but that feeling though of when you see your cousins, your your family. Oh my God! Like literally, I've only I mean, my situation is exactly the same, and got a few cousins in in Canada, but almost exclusively in Ghana. Yes, and just seeing you know seeing that family is it's it, honestly it's magical. It it's it's incredible feeling. It is. It is. Yeah, it, I love it's it. very I, love I can it. imagine you just feel like you're home, right? Like yeah. when you get off at Kotaka Airport and you, you know, now can you believe now the airport ha- they have a terminal now where you can actually go straight from the airport airplane straight into a terminal. But yeah. you you remember going down the stairs when you get out of the state oh, yeah. you, you know, it's just that smell that that's smell like, that wow, air. Oh home. my that goodness. Air, that that humidity. Oh, and, or yes. when you drop when you're flying, and if you're able to pay attention, guys, you know, or women, if you're listening, like when you fly into Ghana, like and you come right off the coast, you just see just this red clay, you know, and then you land. It's just like amazing. It's just so different, you know? It's so different. And the people, uh, it's oh, it's beautiful. I, I mean, one of the things that I got to experience uh, last time I went was actually I've been three times what I'm saying it was uh it was a funeral for the uh, uh Ashanti Hini or the Ashanti King's a, sister okay and you just saw all this royalty in the in, in Kumasi center going off drum beats people singing it was like you know, like I am home man it was it was incredible. I wish I took a video of it. I was just too into it to like uh, wanted to take uh, to to pause and 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 take out the camera. But oh my goodness, um, mm, yeah. I'm digressing. Listen, I just want to thank you so much for doing this. I know you, as a trauma surgeon, as a podcaster, your schedule's crazy. As a having a three month old at home. By the way, your life is going to be crazy for the next year. Uh, especially going from one to two, but it's you'll be fine. Um, <laughs> I really appreciate you coming on. You do amazing stuff, and uh, it truly is an honor to have you on the show. Hey, thank you very much, Dr. Quadro. Thank you for having me on the show. I've listened to your show, you're doing amazing stuff too. And keep at it, man. And for the listeners, man, please continue to share you know this podcast with other people. You know, and there's sometimes we may have uncomfortable conversations, but it's the things that need to occur. And these all come from a good place. So I want to, once again, thank you for letting me come on your platform and share my thoughts of, you know, the U.S. system and some of my upbringing. 
And mm-hmm. um, I hope you continue this. And I hope the the users, or excuse me, the listeners continue to share this episode or share this, your podcast with other people to help it grow. Absolutely. Another docs too. We're probably going to plug this in the, in the, both the intro and the outro, but yeah, docs outside the box. You love it, baby. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah uh, so thanks so much. Yo, tell me that wasn't proper, yo. Thanks so much for listening in. If you loved the episode, please leave a five-star rating with the show. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, at Quadcast. Leave any comments at Quadcast99 at gmail.com. Shout out to our fans in Lacombe, Alberta. You know we love you. Follow Knees Podcast at Docs Outside the Box. Once again, we'll have that link in the show notes. And uh, everybody, thanks for listening and stay safe.